Hot Take is brought to you by Idealist.org. Have your Sunday scaries turned into Monday melancholies and too bad it's only Tuesdays? It's time for you to visit, yeah, it's a good one, (laughs) idealist.org to search thousands of jobs you'll love. You deserve to find work that earns you a paycheck and helps build a better world. Over the last 25 years, idealist.org has helped millions of people find jobs with purpose featuring jobs at nonprofits, socially conscious companies, and businesses hiring for socially responsible positions, Idealist.org can help you ditch the Sunday scaries for good. Every job I've ever gotten has been on Idealist. Really? Yep. That's cool. True story. Want advice on how to succeed in your career? No matter where you work, the Idealist.org career advice blog offers everything you need to know about standing out after submitting your resume, acing the interview, managing up, and achieving work-life balance. Career advice from Idealist.org will make sure you're prepared to chart a course through the career you've always dreamed about. So forget the gig economy and drop the daily grind. Go to Idealist.org slash work and apply for your dream job today. Life is short. Love your job. Hey, hotcakes. We are planning a mailbag episode, but first we need a bag full of mail. So we need questions from you. Send your questions to hottake at crooked.com. That's hottake at crooked.com. And remember, that's just for questions. Uh, please continue to send all hate mail to Brian Kahn. That's B-K-A-H-N at protocol.com. That's right. And you can send us anything. Questions about policy. Who's taller? Who's oh. taller, actually. Um, it's me. Movies, TV shows. Um, politics, movement stuff. Mm-hmm. Some, what we have for know. breakfast. Yeah, whatever. Our cats. Um. <laughs> oh, right, because you have multiple cats now. Yeah. Yes, I do. Anything yeah. you want, send it. If we don't know the answer and we want to include your question, we'll at least try to figure out the answer. So, um, so yeah, don't be shy. If you want to be anonymous, you can note that in your email, too. Send us your questions. We will answer them to the best of our ability. Amy, what's your um, social security number? No, no. Hot take at crooked.com. Send them in. Hey, hot cakes. Welcome to Hot Take. I'm Amy Westervelt. And I'm Mariana Ease Hegler. And it's Halloween week. Are you excited? Oh, boy. I actually have to spend all week making costumes for my kids. You so, make no, them? This is, yes, we do. Wow. We have, like, me and Archie used to make his together. We're going to do that again this year. And now Roscoe's getting in the mix. But it's exhausting. It takes so much time. What are we talking um, about here? A nine and seven-year-old? Ten and six. Ten mm-hmm. and six. What are you, you going to make them? Oh, that's the other thing. Like, these are not simple ghost costumes. <laughs> <laughs> what, what are you doing? <laughs> one is like a character from an anime, and the other one is actually also a character from an anime, but better known. It's like a Pokemon character. Oh, wow. That yeah. sounds involved. I didn't even know you could sew. Yes, I can sew. I can paper mache. I can cut cardboard, paint, all kinds yeah. of crafts. That sounds involved. And I'm over here just upset that I couldn't find bat wings to slap on my cat. Oh, man. I That'd always so like cute. 
Right. And Halloween is such a big deal here in New Orleans. Oh, yeah. But, like, it's fun there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm sure it is. I just don't have the energy for it. And it's always, yeah. I always do this thing where it's like Halloween is coming. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to dress up. I'm going to like do a big thing this, this year. And, and then, do that. Yeah. And the next thing I know, it's the week of Halloween. I'm like, yeah, fuck that shit. I'm too <laughs> so, tired. Too tired. Yeah. Too tired. Why? Because there's so much work to do. And so, yeah, yeah this week we're going to be talking about all the things going on climate. So we're going to talk about the midterms because those are still happening. Uh, We're going to talk about (gasps) what's going on in your neck of the woods and Latin America. Um, Mm -hmm. And we're going to talk about COP27, which is kicking off right after um, election day. So Mm -hmm. without any further ado, I think it's time. It's time to talk about climate. Yep. Today's episode is sponsored by Ravensburger Puzzles. I don't think I've ever been so excited about an advertiser in my life because, yes, I am a giant puzzle nerd. And Ravensburger makes the best puzzles, as anyone who loves puzzles will tell you. I live in a place where we actually get pretty frequent power outages. (laughs) And, And when we do, I like to break out a puzzle. It's also a fun way to keep my kids off of their screens and do something sort of calm and meditative together. It's very satisfying when you snap that last piece into place. If you are looking for a calm and mindful exercise, I highly recommend checking out Ravensburger. Regardless of your preferences or skill level, you'll find a jigsaw puzzle that suits you perfectly thanks to the wide range of imagery, themes, and piece counts available. You can start small with a a pretty straightforward puzzle and work your way up to over 40,000 pieces. Are you up for the challenge? Shop Ravensburger on Amazon today. This holiday season, get a gift for yourself too, and keep it simple. I gave myself the gift of a better, more convenient laundry experience. I know, I know, laundry doesn't sound like a gift, but honestly, EarthBreeze just makes it so much easier. Think about how you actually do laundry. You have to work out how much detergent to pour, lift that big plastic jug, hope the goo doesn't get everywhere. It's annoying. But EarthBreeze Eco Sheets look like nothing I've ever seen in the detergent aisle. It's almost, it's like a dryer sheet kind of, but it's the detergent and you throw it in and then that's it. There's no measuring, no nothing. It works in hot and cold. It's also dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic, and free of bleach and dyes. And it fights everyday stains and odors. You get a powerful clean, but you don't have to deal with all that packaging. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%, 40, 40%. 40%. Go to That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E.com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription earthbreeze.com slash drilled.
All right. So, Mary, we talked a couple weeks ago about the strong slate of Southern Black Democrats on the ballot in November, and we're going to talk next week in a lot more detail with our favorite wonky policy person who's not wonky at all, Rihanna Gunn-Wright, about the stakes of this election and more everything, all the ways that climate is coming up. But today, we wanted to look across the country at where climate is showing up in the midterms, which are happening in like a week. <laughs> yeah, just about. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it'll be about a week. Um, yeah. And we're also going to talk about how the media is covering this topic, too, because that's just as important <sighs> as anything a candidate says. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I just was reading a Politico story that was like, how the midterms could affect the energy industry and climate policy. And it was sponsored by Chevron. <laughs> I know good and well that you were not surprised by that. But the only thing that surprises <laughs> me is that you were reading it. I know. Someone sent it to me and I was like, oh, that, that's good. I want to read that. Uh, like I got halfway through and I was like, wait, is that an Chevron ad for biogas? Yes, it is. There it is. That train's never late. <sighs> I feel like it's worth pointing out this thing, because a lot of times when you talk about fossil fuel ads, people get all up in arms and they're like, well, if you were to ban fossil fuel ads, where would it end? Everything has a carbon <laughs> footprint, you know, yada, yada, yada. Uh, like the Guardian banned fossil fuel ads a couple years ago, and their um, their editor-in-chief had a really good response to this, which was basically, look, it's very easy to draw the line because oil companies are the only companies that don't advertise their product when they're advertising. They advertise like political ideas and ideology and like false solutions Mm -hmm. and all of that kind of stuff. So like, it's very easy to see that as propaganda as like, like definitively different from any other type of ad that's selling a product or service. Like Chevron's not trying to get you to go to their gas station. That, that like ship sailed in the seventies, you know, like nobody has, (laughs) right. Like a, you know, nobody has like a brand uh, like loyalty to a to a particular gas station, right? I mean, you go wherever is like the cheapest gas that's closest to where you are when you need gas. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah, I've seen some interesting stuff about, you know, what's at stake on climate if the Democrats lose control of the House, um, yeah. which I think, and I think that's pretty useful. The New York Times did something last week on that. It seems like it could motivate folks to vote if they realize what's at stake. Yeah. Yeah, I hope so. I think that um, there's been, it's been interesting because I, like, we had a whole episode on this, right? Like the apathy of the young climate voters at the beginning of the year, you know, was Mm -hmm. like this big conversation that was going on. And I don't see that happening now. I think that like, you know, post IRA and maybe post some other things that, that like, young climate voters don't sound quite as apathetic as they were. And they're certainly not polling that way. So, you know, maybe there's some um, some hope there. I also think that for sure the the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe is, is having a big impact on voter turnout. Um, I don't know. I just, I feel like Democrats are just doing a shit job of, like, making it clear to people what's at stake here. Yeah. I I am not seeing them. I'm seeing them regularly see the narrative to Republicans that, like, inflation and high gas prices are all because of Democrats and particularly because of environmental policy. And, like, I'm not seeing a lot of, like, strong um, messaging 
to like to the contrary of that, except from like a handful of progressives who, you know, for for some reason, the party is still never listening to. I mean, seriously, even though they keep, you know, winning and energize, not just winning, but energizing their base um, in a way that nobody else really seems to even be doing that. I think it's it's incumbent on us and on anyone listening to this and, you know, anyone who cares about climate to actually really do the like fucking get out the vote thing. Like, I I feel like I have never been a big, um, you know. I'm going to go knock doors and get people to vote kind of person. And I I completely understand why people feel a bit cynical about um, the power of, of the vote these days. But right now it is the absolute only line of defense when it comes to climate. Um, if we lose the house, that is a hundred percent going to be bad news for climate. Does that mean that like all is lost and you just give up and go home if that happens? No, there are still things that can yeah, be no, done. That's never going to happen. That's, that's never going to happen. Be very clear that's <laughs> never happening. Yeah, but it's like yeah, the the easiest way to avoid a bunch of bad shit is to get out there and vote for candidates who don't want to do bad shit. Um, right. Especially now, like with all the voter suppression and everything else, it's like the only way to combat that shit is in numbers. That's it. Yeah. And also voting is not a one stop, you know, action. No. And no no one is suggesting that it is. Right. So, Mm -hmm. well, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know what everybody is literally saying. Unfortunately, (laughs) some people do do that. And I think it's unhelpful. Yeah. And also, (laughs) you know, the Democratic leadership does tend to get frustrated when you vote them into office and then tell them what to do. It's just like, yeah. I don't know what kind of relationship you thought you had with your vo- your constituents. But anyway, voting yeah. is a really important thing to do if you are able to do it. Um, mm-hmm. And you should do it. It just shouldn't That's be right. the only thing that you do. That's right. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yes. So um, I have been working on a piece for The Guardian about this. They asked me to look at where climate's showing up in the midterms. And I so I was looking into it. And honestly, like, I was like, oh, yeah, I could, like, write that off the top of my head. But I started looking into it more. And there were a bunch of races that I had kind of, like, kind of forgotten about, including ones Hmm. that will probably seem obvious to you when I mention them. But I was like, oh, yeah, that's also important. Hmm. Um, So, for example, Ohio, um, J.D. Vance is running against Tim Ryan to be uh, a senator from Ohio. Yeah, this guy's bad news. Real really? Bad I thought you and him were like friends from way back. No, bros. From your no. days in, because I know he did venture capitalism out in San Francisco. And oh, I yes. thought you guys were like buddy buddy <laughs> because of that. He's like the hillbilly venture capitalist. That's why he's famous, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's actually come up in some of the the campaign stuff and, and debates and whatnot that like, um, because the he, he keeps bringing up Nancy Pelosi and how much his opponent loves Nancy Pelosi and all of this stuff. And so his opponent, Tim Ryan, who's a Democrat in Ohio, was like, you're running against me. If you want to run against Nancy Pelosi, you should move back to San Francisco. Oh, I mean, he walked (laughs) right into that. Okay, so for for our listeners who don't know J.D. Vance at all, in all seriousness, this is the dude who wrote Hillbilly Elegy, and he sucks— for a lot of reasons, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, he does. Um, he wrote this book about Appalachia that conservatives really loved because it sort of propped up a bunch of, like, bullshit, romanticized nostalgia about the past and about, like, poor working-class white people. Um, but, like, he is not a poor working-class person <laughs> at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, a bunch of people who are from Appalachia were like, this book is, like, so not representative of actual Appalachian communities. Um, you know, he did grow up in Ohio, but, like, he went to Yale Law School. He worked as a venture capitalist in the Bay Area. This is not, like, the traditional trajectory of, like, working-class poor people in Appalachia. Um <laughs> Yeah. and But yeah. also, didn't a bunch of left-wingers kind of love him for a minute, and they kind of used his work to understand why Trump became popular? Yes, there was a lot of that. There was a lot of, like, oh, see, like, the left has forgotten about the white working class. Like, all his, that, his book was, like, a real, I don't know, just kind of um, center for a lot of that conversation that happened post-Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 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 So, yeah. Um, and just for the record, the guy he's running against, Tim Ryan, like, not my favorite either, by the way. He mm-hmm. has been, you know, pretty supportive of gas in Ohio. He's not a climate candidate by any stretch of the imagination. Um, Would you say you know, that he wants to pass gas? He does want to pass gas in a big way. <laughs> he loves it. Um so, you know, it's not like, it's definitely not one of those where, like, we have a, you know, an anti-fracking candidate against, like, a super industry guy. It's sort of like, it's definitely one of those lesser of two evils races. But I think, you know, there's a chance that, like, you could get a Tim Ryan to to actually do some stuff in terms of, of like, holding utilities accountable Ohio is where there was this massive utility scandal a couple of years ago where they caught, like, a utility was paying a politician there to, like, oh, wow. to ram through legislation that would um, keep a bunch of old coal um, coal-fired power, power plants alive and um, would make it harder to, to get solar going. And, yeah, I mean, it was, like... Um, it was like out of some kind of true crime documentary or something like FBI vans pulled up to his house and arrested him and shit. Yeah. It's, it's very bad. Um, so, yeah. But I want to yeah. underscore that choosing between the lesser of two evils is actually a really important thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I know it's yeah. like, well, they both suck, so I'm just not going to choose between the two of them. It's like, yeah. you know, if I've got a choice between getting tapped with a car or getting run over by a car, I'm choosing the tap every day. I don't want to do right. either one of them. <laughs> that's know? right. That's right. It's a good <laughs> metaphor. Yeah. 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 Like, that's exactly One is right. survivable and one is not. So I'm going to pick the one I can survive. It mm-hmm. kind of um, reminds me of this James Baldwin essay called The Notes on the House of Bondage. Um, mm. And it was a an endorsement. You wouldn't know it until like two-thirds of the way through the essay. It was an endorsement of Jimmy Carter. Um, and it basically was like choose voting for Carter buys us time. Mm. And that's what you're doing in a lot of these elections. That's you're right. not voting for the victory. You're voting for the chance to have the victory in the, in the future. Yeah. Um, so and that's important. 
you know? So anyway, anybody who's like, you know, wanting to know more about that line of thinking, I I highly recommend Googling James Baldwin Notes on the House of Bondage. It is still online today. I think he published in Hmm. Esquire magazine. That's awesome. Awesome. Yeah, Yeah, that's exactly right. It it buys you time. And especially on climate, you know, any— any candidate that represents less fossil fuel development across the board is a better choice, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, a big kind of through line in that race and in, I would say, every, certainly every, like, federal government race that I've looked at is this narrative that the Republican Party is pushing, which is basically, like, Biden and environment policies are responsible for high gas prices. And oh I, boy. I do not understand why Democrats out, aren't out there like I don't know. I don't understand why they even let that get said before they respond. You know, like I don't I don't like um Katie Porter this past week did a great job of kind of illustrating how corporations are responsible for inflation. Um, Ro Khanna has been pretty good at explaining how oil companies are responsible for high gas prices. And I, I don't understand why Democrats aren't just like running ads with that shit 24-7 and like starting their debates by being like, yeah. you know, this candidate needs to answer why they're not, you know, cracking down on the corporations that are causing high gas prices and inflation. <laughs> yeah. Know? I mean, being reactionary, <sighs> like why... If you know where they're going, beat them there. Basically. You know, so I I hope Democrats get better at responding to that. Um, Actually, Mm -hmm. Biden just last week gave a press conference to let everyone know that six oil companies pocketed $70 billion in profit over the past 90 days. Um, And so that seemed to get some attention. It did. It really did. And I, I... I was like, God, why weren't, why haven't you been saying this every day for the last month? You know what I mean? I just, I'm just like, yeah, yeah. I don't, I really don't understand why they're, um, why they're not like being more proactive with mm-hmm. with that shit. Yeah. So far, not so much. Uh, so, what other races should we be watching? Uh, well, definitely Charles Booker in Kentucky, as you pointed out last time we talked about the midterms. Um, of course, ousting Mitch McConnell would be amazing. Booker (laughs) is also uh, like a truly great climate candidate. Um, like he has really great policies, but he's also able to do this thing that I think is kind of the key for a lot of, of candidates when they're talking about climate, which is to talk about things that are climate without, like beating people over the head with climate rhetoric, you know? Mm-hmm. So like he can go out and talk to farmers in Kentucky about how um, floods and unpredictable weather have impacted their harvest and how the soil is worse now than it used to be. And, you know, things like that, which is totally a climate conversation, but he's not going out there being like, you know, what about 1.5 degrees, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's saving the jargon for the wonks, you know? So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I love to hear yeah. it when a candidate takes their job as a communicator seriously yes. and, you know, doesn't just 
meet people where they are and leave them there. That drives me insane. It's like, well, they don't care about climate change, so I'm not going to talk to them about climate change. Like, uh, yes, kind of. Your That's job, a great homie. way to put it. That's such a good way to put it. Meet people where they are and leave them there. Yes, yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, big fan of Charles. He's so good at connecting all the He's dots so on climate good. and economy and the equality and yeah, mm-hmm. really, really hoping for him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other one is Mandela Barnes in Wisconsin. Um, <laughs> he just texted me today, like me personally. Really? Yeah. To no, get um, oh. a $3 donation. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. His his race is really interesting, too. He's um, also running for Senate, as is... John Fetterman in Pennsylvania. Those mm-hmm. those are both really like pretty big, big deal elections. They're swing states. They're um, you know they're they're important not just for climate but also for a lot of labor policy, education policy, healthcare, like a lot of that stuff. The electoral will, college. <laughs> the electoral college. Yeah. yeah, a lot of that stuff will really change dramatically depending on who's elected in those. Um, in those states. And and both of them have also done this thing that I talked about before, which is pointing out that the real enemy um, on gas prices and inflation and climate change are oil executives. So mm-hmm. like, I, yeah, someone made this point to me the other day that, that you know, um, oil executives are basically stealing money from the American people and that people should be as mad at them as they were at Wall Street during the the financial crisis in 2008. And I was like, that Mm -hmm. is so true. But the oil companies have done such a good job of um, convincing people that, like, they're the common man. Mm -hmm. Like, people don't think of them as Wall Street. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So both... uh, Barnes and Fetterman and Charles Booker, too, are all really good on kind of making it clear who the actual enemy is. And it seems to be really resonating with, like, uh, labor unions, you know, working class folks who are like, yeah, why are these guys making a bunch of money while we're, like, struggling to make ends meet? And the other thing I want to say about that is, like, the reason that these candidates are good at connecting those dots and are good at relating climate to like what people are experiencing day to day is because for the most part, they're all people who have, you know, lived that experience or at least seen it up close for long enough to understand what it means when you're living paycheck to paycheck and all of a sudden your household electricity bills are double. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I'm like, I'm sorry, but Nancy Pelosi does not have that lived experience. And no, she she's got never an ice gonna cream. Get she's got an ice cream <laughs> freezer, okay? <laughs> I know, I know. I'm like, I'm I'm sorry, but like that makes a difference. When you can talk to someone about what it's like to not be able to buy as much food for your family from one week to the next and to not know how you're gonna make it all work and actually know what that is like that makes a really big difference in how you connect to voters. And I, I think that's like a consistent thing that I'm seeing in these candidates that are able to like connect the dots on climate and also to kind of um, battle some of these right-wing talking points in an effective way is that they're all 
um, they're all able to to actually relate to people who have kind of normal lives. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so what I'm also hearing is that it seems like maybe Democrats have gotten over this whole you can't talk about fracking in Pennsylvania thing. Yes. Um, But also, I know some climate folks, myself included, have been a little skeptical of Fetterman. Yeah. Yeah. So Fetterman... um, a lot of people are a little like eh with about him because he at one point was all for a fracking ban and then he kind of went back on that. But that's where he lost me. So that's, yeah, tell me what happened. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I think that like um I think that the reason he stopped talking about it as a fracking ban was that he was hearing from a lot of people who were misinterpreting that as meaning we're going to turn off the spigot from one day to the next and everyone's going to be out of a job with no plan. Um, And that's not what he was proposing or really what anyone anyone. talks about a fracking ban has ever been proposing. But that's what people hear when they hear a ban, right? Right. So he's like, I'm all for getting us off of fracking. I just want there to be a plan. And like, so that I'm kind of like, I don't know if he has yet, but he's like first step of his plan is holding gas company executives accountable for all of the shit that they've gotten up to in Pennsylvania. So he's proposing like that. that, which I like because I'm like, OK, yeah, because he's basically like he's like, well, if you if you hold people accountable and you don't make it so easy to just take land and poison water and, you know, get past communities and you know, just do a bunch of stuff that local communities don't want you to be doing. If you actually do your job as a government official and regulate those things, then all of a sudden, you know, the, like the, the financials don't work as great for these companies and you have an immediate reduction in projects right out the gate just by like enforcing the regulations that you already have on the books and going after the bad actors who are sort of flagrantly ignoring any kind of regulations and dumping waste here and there. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, he's kind of walking that line. The other candidate in Pennsylvania who's also doing that is uh, Attorney General Josh Shapiro, who's running for governor now. Um, He's kind of doing a similar thing where he has actually litigated against some of the oil and gas companies in Pennsylvania. And he is very into the idea of accountability for oil and gas. Um, but he's kind of talking about that and not about, um, you know, a fracking ban because I think Mm -hmm. that, so I'm kind of like, you know, all right, well not perfect, but I would way rather see people who are like, we need to tread a careful line around fracking while still talking about it versus even two years ago, it was like, don't even mention fracking or else you can't run for anything in Pennsylvania. Right, right. So that's you know? that's definitely some progress right there. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. so we'll be keeping an eye on that one. Are, are there any other races that you're watching? There's actually a lot of races where I feel like the impact for climate will be pretty big. Um, Rebecca Lieber did a really good write-up in Vox of all the kind of down-ballot elections that are important for climate. Like, for example, if Republicans pick up five more seats in the North Carolina state government, they will uh, be able to get past even a governor veto. So that's fucking terrifying. Like, they will have total control of the government. 
Yeah, tool. I saw that. It definitely really freaked me out. And that is, I don't yeah. know what part of that is supposed to be democratic, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, actually the North Carolina governor is a Democrat who has a pretty strong climate policy that he's been trying to implement. But, like, he, it's going to be impossible for him to do anything. He won't even be able to get, like, appointments through. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, North happens. Carolina is the only southeast state with a climate plan. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that would just render it, you know, useless. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And then there's just so much that could change in Texas in this election that I feel like it's it's important to spend a little bit of time on it. So right now you have a governor, attorney general, and Texas Railroad Commissioner all up for grabs in the midterms. <laughs> yeah. And I, I feel like, you know, folks who aren't diehard climate folks might hear yeah. Texas Railroad Commissioner and be like, what on <laughs> earth does that have to do with me? Uh, yeah. <laughs> but it actually is pretty important. And can you break that down, please? Totally. It sounds like the Texas Railroad Commissioner, like when I think of it, I think of someone in like, I don't know, an old timey like railroad engineer cap. <laughs> Can I tell you what I think of? What? Tell me. I think of Monopoly. <laughs> like a top hat and a monocle. Right? And were there like railroads in Monopoly? Yes, totally. Right? Yes. yes. Oh my God, that's hilarious. Yes. 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 Um, but it's not okay, that. So it's not that, no. Um, the Railroad Commission does, yes, handle railroads in the state, but it's it's basically the oil and gas regulator in mm-hmm. Texas. Um, so the Texas Railroad Commission decides how much oil and gas can be produced by each well. Um, they actually created kind of a blueprint for what eventually became OPEC. Um, oh, they've really? been around, yes, they've been around since like 1919. Um, they created this thing called the pro-rating system, which was the, – the whole intention was to sort of, like, manage the resource of oil in Texas so that it was a little bit less erratic, you know, so that they didn't have this huge, like, swing back and forth in pricing and production and all of that stuff. And um, and so they didn't have, like, a giant swing in jobs that matched that because um, what was happening was, like, you know, someone would strike oil and they'd hire a bunch of people and then they would, like, fire them three months later, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So anyway, um, they actually did regulate the industry for a long time, but starting in the 70s during the initial um, kind of oil embargo crisis, they started to become more and more like an arm of the industry. And pretty much ever since then, they have just kind of done the oil and gas industry's bidding. Um, yeah. Does this have anything to do with the oil and gas that moves by rail? It does. Like, the, yeah. Okay. They they do also have a say in like, you know, stuff like what you're allowed to transport by rail and not. Um, okay. So things like that. And a shit ton um, of oil and gas does move or just fossil fuel products move by rail. By rail. And, um, like, probably the bigger component of that that they would get involved with is spills. So Mm -hmm. they're the people who, like, fine companies for oil spills. And in Texas, a lot of times you're talking about, yes, spills by rail and also by pipelines and things like that. So um, there are uh, three commissioners on the Texas Railroad Commission. They have all been Republicans for the past 25 years. Wow. 
Yeah. Um, For a generation. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, two years ago was the first time that that, like, almost changed. There was a Democrat who came close. Um, Now there's another Democrat who is running. And, like, he's he's interesting. His campaign has kind of gotten a lot of attention on climate Twitter because he had, like, a good ad where he explained what the Railroad Commission is and why it was so um, integral in in the Texas kind of grid failure in 2021. Mm, mm-hmm. What's his name? His name is Luke Warford, and he is running against a guy named Wayne Christian. <laughs> the last time I heard that name was when someone sent me some tapes of a gas industry conference where... Um, a bunch of oil and gas people were talking in Texas, and Wayne Christian in particular was whining about how his kids were learning that, like, oil and gas is bad in school and that they needed to find a way to combat this. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So it's yeah. shook. Yeah. Actually, a lot of the newspapers in Texas have en- endorsed him, too, which seems... Interesting. Uh, Like the Houston Chronicle, you know, Houston is like the hub of oil and gas in Texas. So for them to endorse the Democrat for Texas Railroad Commission is kind of a big deal. Yeah. Um, You know, and yeah, yeah, he's he's definitely an interesting guy. I think it's really hard to know if if any Democrat has a shot at becoming railroad commissioner in Texas. (laughs) But, you know. Well, they're going to keep trying. Yeah. Is this one of those positions that, you know, Democrats just haven't even bothered running a candidate in for a decade or so? Because that that really is the case with a lot of these offices in the South yeah. from like local government all the way up to the U.S. Senate to the governor seats. Like often the Republicans yeah. will just run unopposed because yeah. the Democrats yeah. gave up on the South. I'm not sure if. They never run a candidate. All I know is that the first time I heard about a, a like a serious Democratic challenger was 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would I I think it's probably true that the first time they started to actually put money into that race was 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, we'll see. We'll see if this guy can swing it. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I. Yeah, I, I know there's more to talk about with the midterms, but we need to pay a couple of bills first. So we'll be back after some ads. But before we go, everybody in the climate world is talking about soup these days. So I'm dying to know, Amy, what's a ghost favorite soup? A ghost favorite soup. There are a couple of acceptable answers. Bukali cheddar. <laughs> that wasn't one of them. Um, no. Scream of broccoli. Oh, scream of broccoli. That's yeah. good. I like Which it. is actually really funny because their science saying that broccoli is sentient enough to actually let out a slightly audible scream when you bite into it. Oh which my I will God. tell you. That's yeah, terrifying. Cauli- cauliflower too, which I will tell you as a vegan <gasps> makes it more delicious. <laughs> That's right. crazy. We'll be right back. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. 
And when you're faced with challenges in life, it can be tough to train your brain to stay in problem-solving mode. But when you learn how to find your own solution, there's no better feeling. I'm trying to think of a time where I haven't been uh, stuck on a problem. Um, (laughs) I am a classic overthinker. um, Mm. And, you know, therapy is great for that because you have somebody that you pay to overthink with you. They can't tell you to drop it. They can't tell you to get over it. That's their job. Let it go. Not a thing you'll hear from a therapist. No, I don't want to fucking (laughs) let it go because that's not how trauma works. And the therapist knows that and they're trained to help you deal with it. It's wonderful. Mm -hmm. Um, So a therapist can help you become a better problem solver and making it easier to accomplish your goals, no matter how big or small. Maybe your goal is just cooking for yourself this week because you haven't been able to do that because you've been so depressed. Welcome to Mm. the club. You are not alone. Um, (laughs) If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It is convenient. It's accessible, affordable, and entirely online. Amy, I know you love that. It's true. It's true. I like I, I say this every time we have a better help ad, but I think it's helpful for um, people who don't live near a lot of therapists like mm-hmm. me and also people who have crazy schedules and, and are having a hard time fitting therapy into their schedule. You can find a therapist who's in a totally different time zone. So if you want to do therapy in the middle of the night, you can. Uh, <laughs> you can yeah. also you can do that. You can also just send them a letter or like a an email or whatever. Um, it's also a great way to like kind of wade your way into therapy if you're new to it. And, you yes. know, the whole process of finding someone to go to in person feels like really mm-hmm. overwhelming. BetterHelp can be a great way to just like acclimate yourself to what therapy is even like to begin with. Yeah. Um, Get matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey, and you can switch therapists anytime, Mm -hmm. Uh, which let me tell you, that's a game changer. Yeah. Yeah. That's a game changer right there. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, So when you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Hot Take today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Hot Take. Hot Take is brought to you by Athletic Greens. These guys have a product I love. It actually makes me feel more awake in the morning than coffee. AG1. It's this amazing, I don't know, what do you call it? A, a supplement, I guess? A supplement. It's like a like little a, power. A little it's a powder. powder. Yeah. It's a little scoop of like wonderfulness in a <laughs> shake in the morning. It gives me tons of energy. It makes me feel really focused. It does all of that without making me feel jittery the way like too much coffee would. Um, and I feel like it's it makes me feel a little bit less bad if I happen to not, you know, get as many vegetables into my day as I would like. So all of those things are are great. I feel like it's helped me to not get sick, too. Mm. Um, even when, like, my kids have been sick this year, I haven't gotten sick. And I, oh, wow. I most, yeah, I think it's AG1, at least part of it, at least part of it. Um, AG1 also supports better sleep quality, and it costs you less than $3 a day, so you can invest in your health for less than a daily cappuccino. And honestly, if you swap in this for one cup of coffee, I think it's a good swap. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> you can still have your coffee. I know they're like, oh, it gives you, oh, yeah, you both. don't need to drink coffee if you drink AG1. When I tell you I'm double fisting. <laughs> yeah. I definitely feel like I can drink less coffee, though, which is good for, like, my nerves overall, my stomach, all of that stuff. It's oh, good. It's, I can, it's but good I don't. For me. 
Plus, for every purchase, AG1 donates to organizations helping to get nutritious food to kids in need, including No Kid Hungry here in the U.S. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water or a smoothie every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free, free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. I got to say this vitamin D absolutely saved me from getting sick earlier this year. It's like a freaking miracle. Yeah. Um, and most people great. have a deficiency, so it's good yeah. to get that in your diet. Definitely. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash hot take. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash hot take to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. All right. So obviously, Beto O'Rourke is running for governor in Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, he's done a pretty good job of running against the state's crazy gun laws, especially yeah. in the wake of the Uvalde shooting. Um, he's a good climate candidate, too, and I don't think he really gets enough credit for that. Um, yeah. He was one of the first candidates to roll out a comprehensive climate plan when he ran for president in the 2020 election. Remember that? Yeah. Um, Feels like a decade ago, but yes. I know, yes. I know. <laughs> um, and in his run for governor, I think he's done a good job of this thing you were talking about before, where talking about it in terms that make sense to his audience. So yeah. it's all about energy, leadership, and jobs. You know yeah. how I feel about the whole solving climate is a job fair thing. I don't love it, but this this actually makes sense to me. Um, yeah. He's created a clean energy jobs plan that will that he says will maintain Texas's role as a global global energy leader, um, which, let's face it, is a big part of the state's identity. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And it'll create over a million high-paying clean energy jobs, which is, you know, that's fantastic. Um, This is where I think the Democrats should be talking about the IRA, because in order to actually get some of the financial incentives in that bill, you need politicians who know how to navigate it, and Beto does. Just yeah. like Stacey Abrams from last week, what we were talking about. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, of course, Greg Abbott, the current governor of Texas, is 1,000% in the oil company's pockets. He's actually passed laws that ban the state from doing business with companies that are, like, remotely anti-fossil fuels. Um, and he kind of, like, gets involved in whatever lawsuit Exxon wants him to get involved with. He's just the worst. The worst. Any idea how much money he takes from Exxon? I don't know, but I would guess a lot. Um, A lot, a lot. Uh, And then, of course, the other big one is Attorney General Ken Paxton. (laughs) Who is just a wart on the butt of humanity. He is, like, the absolute worst. Um... You know, he he intervenes on Exxon's behalf in a bunch of things. Um, he's constantly filing just bullshit. Like, he's the one who got all the Republicans together to file a suit to try to force a recount of the last presidential election. Um, he, I don't know. I'm on his office's mailing list, and I feel like I get, like, four or five emails a week about some dumb um, suit that he's filed that's, like, you know, it's unfair to... Um, 
let people get gender reassignment surgery, you know, <laughs> or it's uh, terrible to have immigrants in this country. Like it's, he's just the worst. And yeah, remind me who's running against him. Uh, her name is Rochelle Garza. And that is a super, super close race. And of course she is outfunded like two to one by um, Paxton's campaign. So, um, so definitely like one to watch, one to donate to if you have money and like to donate to political things. Um, it is, yeah. it's just, a, it's a big deal there again. Like the, the AG of Texas has been Republican for decades and they're a very, very central part of, of the whole like right wing judicial apparatus. So, yeah. um, so yeah, it's, it's really, really, really important. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 And the other big thing, of course, is just that Democrats are really in danger of losing control of the House, um, yeah. which would make it that much harder to pass climate policy like you were talking about earlier. Um, mm-hmm. And I just read this piece in the New York Times last week about how energy lobbyists are already getting ready to make good use of the GOP House. Um, yeah. So that's depressing. Um, <laughs> the plan is basically to fight against the aspects of the IRA that support clean energy. Yeah, of course. yeah, it's it's um it's genius. the The American Gas Association is um really leading the charge on that, which is interesting because they were kind of like not on anyone's radar a few years ago, but just in the last like three to five years, they're sort of like right up there with the American Petroleum Institute, kind of setting the agenda for the fossil fuel industry, and they're very much like. Um, all right, let's make sure that we can get everything we can that's pro-gas out of this bill and shut down everything that's for clean energy. Um, yeah, not great. Yikes. Yikes. Mm-hmm. But it is not a foregone conclusion that the Democrats will lose the House. Um, yeah. Again, that's why the midterms are so damn important. So if you can vote vote. Uh, Keeping the House and gaining seats in the Senate would make a huge, huge difference in our ability to act on climate. And we really don't have time to waste going backwards. That's right. But also, what's the hometown of broth? The hometown of broth? Oh, God. I, I, the only thing I can think in my head is the bone zone. (laughs) Where is that supposed to be? Bone broth. I don't know. No, That's but where I can think of what's the bone zone a pun of? I don't know. It's not. It doesn't work. I, I can't explain to you why these phrases pop into my head, Mary. They just do. This is adorable. It's Stockholm. Oh, Stockholm. That makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. I like yeah. it. I like it. So with that, let's take another quick break and talk about another big election coming up. Hot Take is brought to you by Lomi. I know we talk a lot on this show about the need to get rid of the guilt for your personal actions when it comes to climate change, but that Mm -hmm. also doesn't mean you shouldn't do better when you're able to do better. And one of the areas in which I absolutely always want to do better is food waste. Mm -hmm. Um, I uh, was raised within an inch of my life to never waste food, and Mm. food waste is a huge contributor to methane emissions, believe it or not, and Mm -hmm. methane Mm-hmm. is definitely a greenhouse gas and one that we need to reduce the emissions of. And yep. whenever I waste food, it's like I feel bad about it because I know better. I was raised better. Mm-hmm. And this is these are emissions that do not need to exist and that yeah. I, I can absolutely avoid. So I got a Lomi. 
Um, Lomi allows me to turn my food scraps into dirt with the push of a button. Lomi is a countertop electric composter that turns scraps into dirt in under four hours. Um, wow. And there's no smell when it runs, and it's really, really quiet. And I can just take that dirt and put it into the many houseplants I have around the house because I've developed an addiction. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I think, like, actually one of the big things that makes people hesitant about composting is, like, it's complicated. I don't know what I'm doing. It's going to smell. And this seems like it solves all of those problems. Yeah. I once had, like, an old school compost bin in my house. And mm. I started to have nightmares that the worms were going to organize and get <sighs> out. And uh, it, it was a whole thing. So, yeah, I yeah. don't know. Long story short, those worms wound up under a bridge. Since I got my Lomi, I throw out way less garbage. That means it's not going to landfills and producing methane. Instead, I turn my waste into nutrient-rich dirt that I can feed to my plants. If you want to start making a positive environmental impact or just make cleanup after dinner that much easier, Lomi is perfect for you. Head to Lomi.com hot and use the promo code hot to get $50 off your first Lomi. That's $50 when you head to Lomi, L-O-M-I dot com slash hot and use the promo code hot at checkout. Food waste is gross. Lomi is your solution. You'll want to move quickly as they're over 80% sold out for October. Hot Take is brought to you by Sleep Me. Science tells us that the best way to achieve and maintain consistent deep sleep is by lowering core body temperature. Temperature-controlled sleep repairs muscle after a hard day's work and improves cognitive function so you always start your day feeling sharp and alert. My own personal experience tells me this too. I always sleep better in like a cold room or a cold bed. Um... And I swear this thing has has really helped me get on Amy. top of some, like, pretty bad insomnia. Yeah. Have you been checked out for vampirism? I haven't, but it's it's possible. I have, like, a very – I have, like, a, an extremely high tolerance for cold. But I also have a high tolerance for heat. Like, I adjusted to the heat and humidity here just fine. Hmm. Um, so, Yeah. Just a, a wide spectrum of temperatures I can deal with. Um, what I don't have is the ability to just fucking fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you gotta be chloroformed. <laughs> yeah, but that, I swear to God, this like makes me pass out. It's great. I feel like I sleep, I fall asleep easier. I stay asleep so I don't wake up. Cause that was, that was something that I was doing a lot was like I'd fall asleep okay and then I would wake up at like 3 a.m. and not be able to fall back asleep till 5, which is the worst. Yeah. Sleep Me has helped with all of that. Sleep Me is the new name for Chili Sleep, bringing you the same great sleep that Chili Sleep offered, but under a new name. Sleep Me makes the coldest and most comfortable sleep systems available. They create the environment that meets the body's natural need for lower core temperatures, promoting deeper restorative sleep. It's a mattress pad, so it keeps your bed at the perfect temperature for deep, cold sleep. I love it. I love it so much. These <laughs> sleep systems are designed to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and give you the confidence and energy you need to power through your day. Head over to sleep.me slash HT to learn more and save 25% off the purchase of any new system. This offer is exclusively for Hot Take listeners and only for a limited time. That's sleep, S-L-E-E-P dot me, M-E, slash H 
to take advantage of our exclusive discounts and wake up refreshed every day. Another pitch for folks to send in their questions to hottake at crooked.com. We need them. We're doing a mailbag episode. Can't do it without a mailbag. Yeah. And a bag full of mail. Yeah. If you are confused about anything from dad jokes to... Just just ask us whatever, okay? You listen to the show. You know the shit we talk yeah. about. Ask us your yeah. questions. If we don't know the answer, we'll make it up. Yeah, or we'll we'll ask someone who might know. Amy Send might. It all. I'll make it up. <laughs> <laughs> Send it to hottake at crooked.com. Okay. <laughs> Moving on to policy, which you can definitely talk about. Oh, God. Latin America. Um, man. Okay. So uh, I think like the, the other big election-based thing that a lot of climate folks are talking about right now is what is going to happen in Brazil yeah. when they have their runoff election on Halloween, so in just a few days, um, which is looking way closer than anyone was anticipating like a month ago. Can we talk about um, the fact that it's on Halloween and that makes me uneasy? <laughs> I, I just, all I can think of is Bolsonaro. <laughs> I just had a full body cringe over here. <laughs> yeah, no, it's actually genuinely... just like really kind of a depressing election. I was just going to say like um, Bolsonaro has done, I mean, it's pretty smart. He's like, um, because he is still the president, you know, (laughs) until the election happens. He has rammed through like a bunch of um, really popular social programs to kind of like get money in people's pockets before the election. (laughs) So they're all like, yeah, Bolsonaro is great. Um. So he's polling really well right now. Uh, Yeah. Of course, like, um, Brazil under Bolsonaro would be absolutely terrible for climate. Yeah. Um, But again, I feel like this is another one of those situations where, like, like Lula was not great on climate. Lula was, like, very pro-beef, very pro-beef industry. Um, He has now kind of changed his tune and has you know, has said that he wants to do better on climate policy, like a, a little bit of a, like, um, you know, kind of doing penance sort of thing almost where he's like, I was wrong. And actually this is really important and whatever, but it's kind of like, who knows, you know, what he yeah. would do if he was actually I mean, in office. So to be clear, Lula being pro beef is bad for climate, both because of the methane emissions from the actual beef from the cattle, yeah. um, but mm-hmm. also because it, uh, it definitely leads to deforestation with those mm-hmm. big ranches that people have. So that's not yeah. good either. However, yeah, right. yeah. uh, while he might have been pro-beef, Bolsonaro was actively anti-Indigenous people and oh, yeah. actively anti-planet. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. he mm-hmm. Bolsonaro has uh, increased deforestation um, on a massive scale. Um, right. And it's gone hand-in-hand with absolutely trampling Indigenous land rights. Mm-hmm. Um, some nearly 4,000 square kilometers of the Brazilian Amazon, that's like Mm -hmm. an area the size of New York City, was lost in the first months of this year alone. 
Yeah, um, that's true. It's outrageous. I mean, it, it is, is absolutely outrageous. And he has also been totally fine with what's called wildcat mining, which is basically people just mining for shit wherever they want, which there again, terrible for water, land, no respect for indigenous land rights. Uh, right. It, it's bad. Yeah. It's basically like if you can make it there, you can do whatever the fuck you want with it if you have enough guns. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, that's yeah. just like bringing back the gold rush. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, we already know where that leads to. Um, yeah. And he pulled Brazil out of the international climate conversations entirely. Um, yeah. He reneged on the country's offers to host COP25, which instead went to Chile, which then instead went to Spain because Chile went into crisis. Remember that? <laughs> that yeah. was so crazy. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, um, oh, so like one really interesting thing for Americans in particular to note about Brazil's elections is that voting is mandatory for everyone who's over 18 there. It is mandatory. mandatory. It is mandatory. You get the day off, paid. Like it is, they, like, honestly, I'm like, I wish we had that. I wish we had that. Me too. Um, so even if people are not very excited about either candidate, they can't stay home. They have to go vote. You can leave the ballot empty, but only, it's like less than 5% of people ever do that. So, um, right. Cause you're there. You might as well pick. Yeah. Somebody. Might as well pick one, you know? Yeah. Um, it's also really, really interesting just in the context of Latin America right now. Cause you have Brazil, that's a giant question mark, but otherwise you have a pretty significant swing left in most of Latin America right now. Um, Colombia and Chile both elected very far left progressive presidents who are very committed to acting on climate. Panama and Chile both recently incorporated rights of nature into their constitutions. They're all very pro-Indigenous rights. Ecuador is actually enforcing Indigenous rights um, for the first time in, like, decades. All of that is happening um, amidst some pretty serious economic challenges. You know, obviously Latin America is not immune to inflation um, or these high gas prices or any of that. So it'll be really interesting to see um, kind of what happens there in the next year in general. Um, Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. And also I think it's going to be really interesting to see how all of that – kind of plays out as we head into the 27th, 27th Conference of the Parties, or COP, in Cairo early next month. Yep. Um, so I I know we've talked about COP on this show before, but in case mm-hmm. you don't know, COP stands for Conference of the Parties, as Amy just said, um, for the UNFCC, the UN Framework on the Convention for Climate Change. It's basically like the big international climate talks. Um, yeah. And the big thing on everybody's mind this year is something called loss and damages, which mm-hmm. I would just get to explain. Reparations. It's reparations. Yes. Yeah. Climate reparations. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not um, sure why it was rebranded as loss and damages, except that it sounds more legal. Maybe. Yeah, <laughs> I guess yeah. so. I mean, we talked about this a little bit on the episode that we did with Abram Luskarin. So please go back and listen to that if you want to learn more about, you know, climate reparations or mm-hmm. or all of that. But I do know that uh, a good handful of states in the global south are considering not paying their debt anymore as a result mm-hmm. of the the brunt of climate change that they're bearing. Yeah. 
That's right. Yeah. Yeah. But it becomes really complicated because a lot of those countries are also historically oil producing countries. So this is where I think the whole conversation around national emissions really falls apart. Because when you're talking about, for example, Nigeria, where there are massive floods, millions of people affected, 600 people dead already. I'm sure that that death toll will increase as time goes right. on. Yeah, that was just last week that they said yeah. 600 people. And it always That's increases right. as it goes on. Always. And this is, you know, again, one of these like, once in a hundred year floods. Um, Nigeria also has had a bunch of problems with sea level rise, coastal erosion, soil erosion, all these things that like make a flood worse when it does happen, Mm -hmm. you know? So it's just like this confluence of things that are, are really, really devastating. Um, And then at the same time, Nigeria has been an oil producing country for a long time, but you cannot look at Nigeria and say, oh, they got rich off oil, you Mm -hmm. know, like no multinational companies got rich off of Nigerian oil. So how do we solve for that? How do we like, you know, like, and I I think I keep seeing this coming up over and over again. Like I'm working on this story about um, oil drilling in Guyana It's happening in Namibia, Mozambique, all over the place. And, you know, a lot of countries are looking at the cost of climate adaptation and saying, we need money. We're not getting money from this international body. We're not getting money from any of these countries that claim that they care about climate change. No one is paying us to be a carbon sink. We're just doing that for the world you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and and so they're they're looking at, at oil as one way to do that. So that's where I'm just like, you know, I don't know. I just, I feel like if we're going to talk about what um, global South countries need in terms of, of the, the finances needed to both adapt and to transition to clean energy, why are we not talking about that money coming from oil companies? Exactly. Heading into to COP, like what mostly what we're hearing from global North countries is like what we heard from John Kerry at Climate Week in New York a couple weeks ago, which was, you know, who has the money to pay for this stuff? And we have our own climate disasters to worry about. And I just think that you're you're going to hear more of that until this conversation becomes one about accountability, not just for governments, but also for companies. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm also reminded of what Joe Biden said recently about those billions mm-hmm. of dollars in profits for the oil yeah. companies. So, you know. That's right. They got money. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or like, you know, a lot of countries' sovereign wealth funds. Norway's sovereign wealth fund holds more than a trillion dollars. That is all oil money. You. That, start there. Um, the IMF, I'm sure a lot of that money is oil money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So, like, when we talked to Abram, he suggested, you know, that that some folks were talking about using that money to fund loss and damages. I think that would be an excellent, um, an excellent option. You know, yeah. the, for a long time, a lot of those those funds and uh, the World Bank and a lot of development funds and whatnot helped to fund fossil fuel development as a way to, you know, get global South countries onto, um, quote unquote, cheap fossil fuel energy faster. And I, I don't know, I talked to this one lady in Guyana who was like, you know, 
I'm really tired of um, people like Michael Schellenberger says this all the time and, and various um, kind of green tech libertarian types will, will often say like, oh, the climate movement, they're elitist because they don't want to let global South countries have fossil fuels for longer. And she said, you know, the way I look at it as someone who's from the global South, who cares about, you know, the, the water and the ecosystem of my country, I would rather that the world pay us to be a carbon sink and help us to transition past fossil fuels instead of insisting that we make the same mistakes you did and then leaving uh-huh. us in the past for 50 years. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So, yeah. But, yeah, I don't anticipate these talks being um, anything but, like, pretty disappointing and ugly, to be honest. I mean, it'll be interesting to watch how the discourse has changed over the years. And, you know, the interesting thing about COP is that it, it goes over, like, about two weeks. So we'll definitely be talking mm-hmm. about it again and, and watching it as it unfolds. But um, while I don't expect you know, the heads of state of the global north to make any sort of meaningful decisions. Um, COP does serve as a useful place for peoples of the global south and marginalized people to confront power directly. Um, So that's always an interesting thing to to watch. And and it's also an important space for them to meet each other and to organize with each other. Um, So that is one useful thing that comes out of COP. Um, So we'll be keeping an eye on that. Um, But first, what do ducks put in their soup hmm. it is hmm. right there right in front of you I don't know what do ducks put in their soup goose uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, you, I, I have questions but I'll text them to you uh, qu- the answer is quackers <laughs> what the fuck? I don't know. Duck, duck, goose. That's all I could think of. What do you put in your soup? <laughs> Salt. Okay. Wow. <laughs> okay, so Mary, we haven't surprised each other with uh, stories recently, but uh, we've we've brought some surprises today. Um, I prefer the term I... ambush, actually. Ambush, yes. Yeah. I have um I have one about a new newsletter media enterprise that launched oh recently. I know what this is, but go ahead. <laughs> so this is um something called Semaphore, which I don't know. I'm sure sounds, there's some clever background to that name, but it sounds dumb to me. It sounds like Synanon. You know, the <laughs> yeah, um the drug rehab slash slave labor program. Yeah, 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 it really does. Semaphore. It was started by a bunch of people who sort of decamped from big national outlets. There's Ben Smith, who was at BuzzFeed for a long time. Then he was the media opinion writer, columnist for the New York Times. Um, also David Weigel, who was the political uh, columnist and reporter for the Washington Post forever. Um mm-hmm. And lots of other people like that. Like, definitely a lot of, of names that you kind of um, would recognize. Uh, they My first kind of raised eyebrow with them on climate was they, they sort of made this grand announcement a few weeks ago of, like, 
who all of their hires were and who all of the reporters were going to be that were running different beats. And I um, was like, oh, good, they have a climate person. And then I looked and it was like, you know, someone who had been a reporter for the Wall Street Journal for a long time. And I was Mm. just like, hmm, like the Wall Street Journal does do occasionally some pretty good reporting. They occasionally do some good climate reporting. Um, but I'm not sure that that's like where I would go looking for my climate reporter if I was starting something new. Um, this person, did they cover climate when they were at the Wall Street Journal? Yes. Off and on. Yes. Yes. Um, but they had, and they had been there for a long time and, you know, I haven't read anything that they've done yet, so maybe that will go well. Uh, The reason that I'm bringing it to you today is that they sent out their first climate newsletter today, and lo and behold, guess who it was sponsored by? (laughs) Um, Who was it sponsored by? Uh, BetterHelp. No, no, it was sponsored (laughs) by the favorite sponsor of every climate newsletter, Chevron. Okay, um, but you have to have Chevron on your climate newsletter, Amy. Everybody it's crazy. knows that. It's crazy. So so we now have Politico, Axios, and Semaphore all being sponsored by Chevron. Because that's the um, reliable climate action organization that I trust. It's crazy. It is crazy. Uh, so, you know, we'll see. I'm sure they'll have some explanation or whatever, but... Um, it was a typo. <laughs> yeah, it was oops. Um, to be honest, I mean, I, I honestly, like, this came up, I did a story recently on on fossil fuel money in academia, like funding academic research. And the big question that always comes up there is like, well, if they're not funding it, if oil companies aren't funding, you know, some of these like big public policy centers or climate science research centers or whatever, it's not like there's some giant pot of funding like waiting in the wings to replace it. So, you know, it's this sort of like, well, like what if what if if a school says no to fossil fuel funding, will that mean that they have less funding for research in general and that's like a net bad? And the way that a lot of the organizers who are against fossil fuel funding in research kind of answer that is like, well, yeah, there probably would be less funding and like, that's okay. <laughs> They're like, I would rather have less fun, like less research than have half of it be compromised. And I kind of am starting to feel that way about media. Like mm. I would rather there be fewer climate verticals, but none of them are sponsored by Chevron than like an explosion of climate coverage. And it's all sponsored by oil companies. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. So, yeah. What about you? Um, Well, I am going to break, at least temporarily, my personal rule about not arguing with or critiquing a Black woman in public. Mm. um, Because I got two stories I need to talk about. One's by a white dude, one's by a Black woman, and they're saying the same fucking thing. So (laughs) the first story is called The Climate Justice Movement is Helping Neither the Climate Nor Justice Nor Is It a Movement, actually. Uh, That is by Jonathan Chait in New York Magazine. I don't care if I'm mispronouncing that name, actually. And then... 
The other story yeah. is by a woman named Jerusalem Desmas in The Atlantic, and it's called Not Everyone Should Have a Say. And I, I don't really feel like I need to go much further than this, but <laughs> let's, let's fucking do it, all right? So these articles are arguing <sighs> that the climate justice movement is just like completely a reactionary and irrational and mm-hmm. is only, uh, only out to stop things. Because the climate justice movement is all about, uh, among many other things, is all about allowing communities to have a say in what happens to them. And Mm -hmm. that can require things like environmental impact statements. It can require the Mm -hmm. usage of NEPA, the National Environmental Protection Act. Which allows people to, like, go to public hearings, to make public comment, to Mm -hmm. actually say, I don't want Formosa in my community. Or Mm -hmm. to actually say, I don't want Exxon or a fracking operation in my community. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm just going to read you a couple of passages from here, and then I'm desperate for your reaction. So this Mm -hmm. one is from the New York Magazine piece. It says, in a narrow sense, this shows the climate justice movement's misplaced belief that empowering local communities to block infrastructure projects is a positive force for justice. But it also reveals the larger conceptual problems with the climate justice movement's worldview as a whole, which has devolved into a simultaneously reactionary and radical program that does more to inhibit the green energy transition than to help facilitate it. The movement has proceeded to draw the conclusion that the only viable solution to climate change is to shut down fossil fuel production rather than enable the creation of carbon-free energy that can replace it. And while the climate justice movement presents this stance as an authentic position of oppressed minorities, it mainly represents the beliefs of its funders and professional activists. So first of all, fuck you. Second of all, second of all, I would like to read you this little tidbit from... Not everyone should have a say. And this one breaks my heart because this is from a black woman. So she says, Manchin's loss was hardly a win for the climate, however. She's talking about the Manchin permitting bill that um, that that the Democrats stopped from passing because it was full of shit. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, keep it going. The demise of permitting reform reveals that many people within the environmentalist movement are undermining the nation's emissions goals in the name of localism and community input. The aforementioned, quote, green groups, empowered at the expense of permitting reform, aren't just national organizations. They're grouchy people with time on their hands in communities large and small. And they're not just blocking fossil fuel infrastructure. They're blocking everything. (sighs) Yeah. So Um, what I hate about these pieces is that they are taking the concept of NIMBYism, which mm -hmm. stands for not in my backyard. These are basically Mm -hmm. people who support things like homeless shelters, but don't want a homeless shelter in their backyard. Um, they're, They're basically accusing climate frontline communities of being NIMBYs. Mm-hmm. And trying to take that logic and say, like, well, the benefits of reducing emissions by having carbon capture and storage on this on this uh, coal-fired plant or whatever sort of fossil fuel plant infrastructure near you, um, mm-hmm. the greater benefits of that are so much more than what happens to your specific community. And all of us should have a say in that because that right. affects the whole world. So fuck you and your little concerns. And it's like, these aren't people who are like, oh, I don't want you know this stuff in my backyard because it blocks my view. I don't right. want this stuff in my backyard because it's poisoning me and my children. That is yeah. really fucking different. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and even beyond like the, you know, the carbon capture project at a fossil fuel plant, it's like 
the solar project that might happen across the country in someone else's neighborhood because of this permit reform uh, negates the cancer that you and your family are going to get. It's like the very definition of a sacrifice zone. Exactly. The argument that they're making is like, really what these should be called, both of them, is why sacrifice zones should exist. Honestly. That's really (laughs) what this boils down to. That's what they're saying. Right. And, you know, they, to Jerusalem's credit, she did talk to some environmental justice uh, advocates and Mm -hmm. not many, (laughs) but they were saying, like, we can't replace big oil with big renewables. And Mm -hmm. she did not seem to get that. Like, she didn't seem to understand that this isn't just about reducing emissions. That is a big Mm -hmm. part of what the climate justice movement is about. But the Mm -hmm. justice is just as important as the climate. So it's about building a new world and rebuilding it with justice at the core of it. So Mm -hmm. there are problems with renewable energy that we need to be careful not to repeat because we can wind up with the exact same problem with just a different source. You know, it, it again, it reminds me very much of reconstruction after slavery. Yeah, yeah. I I think I don't know. I just well, I, I have a, a couple of like big issues with I mean, I have a lot of issues with both of these articles, but <laughs> a bet. couple of like specific things. One is that um this permitting thing that Manchin suggested is not the end-all be-all of permitting reform. Like, nowhere has anyone said that, like, they're not going to try to pass other types of permitting reform. Um, Nowhere, like, I wish she had talked to some actual permitting reform advocates because none of them thought that Manchin's bill was good. Um, (laughs) Like, you know, like, I know a lot of people who would like to see NEPA reformed, who were like, oh, but not like this. And the other thing is that neither one of them engaged with the biggest problem that everyone had with Manchin's proposal, which was ramming through the Mountain Valley Pipeline and, importantly, blocking any further legal challenges to it and changing the jurisdiction of any future legal challenges to it. Like making it so that even if there was some sort of related legal challenge that did you know, managed to get through the various barriers put in place by this bill, that it would be handled by a court nowhere near where the pipeline is, which is mm-hmm. insane. Like, to give the federal government that power as a precedent would be so damaging to so many other things. Like, the idea that the federal government will dictate where different court cases get heard, it's just weird. Like why? It's just, it was like a weird part of that whole bill that didn't need to be there. Um, and, and that, that entire piece around Mountain Valley Pipeline was the number one thing that, that environmental justice people were fighting that permitting reform bill for. I did not see anyone walking around carrying, you know, keep NEPA onerous signs. Yeah. (laughs) Like that was not the argument. So that's the other thing is I'm like, you're not even engaging with the actual argument that people were making. You're like assuming what their argument is and then reacting to that. And then you're also like, not even you're like in the few cases where you did actually talk to someone 
you're not understanding what they're saying. Like you're not taking the time to actually understand what they're saying. You're just, it, it felt very much like everyone she talked to was like only in the service of making her argument. It was not yes. like, there was no intention of actually learning anything, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. There was yeah. one particular part that I I wanted to get your opinion on. Um, mm-hmm. So she says, of course, Democrats should not trade away anyone's civil rights in the name of efficiency, but that's a false dichotomy. Community input processes are undemocratic by nature, and the cost of delay is immense. Mm. Um, okay, so this is this is what I thought was really interesting slash dangerous about this article, is that... There are definitely reasons to reform NEPA. Like, no one is actually arguing with that. There are definitely reasons to take take another look at how public comment processes work. And what she's saying there is that, like, oh, well, actually, the people who have time to comment on these projects are not the frontline community members. They're, like, rich people who, you know— work for these organizations or who like have time to show up to the public comment periods or whatever. That is largely true. However, the way that you deal with that is not by limiting the amount of public comment out of across the board and at the same time increasing the ability of fossil fuel companies to have input, which is what this mansion proposal would have done. It's making public comment like less onerous and more accessible for for people in general and condensing the time frame. You can exactly. do those things. Exactly. You can do those things. And that like that option was like not even it, it's like she presented the problem but she didn't actually get into what environmental justice people actually think the problem is. She just sort of again like did this thing where she like assumed what they want and then responded to that without ever engaging with what people are actually asking for. You know, which is not no, literally no one is like I want public comment period to be extra long so that you know, projects take the absolute longest amount of time. No, the only reason people are even concerned about the length of time is that what what often happens is that like a public comment period is announced. Nobody in the community actually hears about it, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and then they don't really have the ability to weigh in because, you know, they don't find out about it in time or they have to like actually show up in person to give comment or they don't know how to navigate the public comment system or any of those things. So it's like people are concerned about access and and actually about addressing this problem that she's brought up about, you know, the the inequality that's baked into the public comment process. But the the solution to that is not chucking the public comment process. Right. I think in both of these cases, they're like, Here's something that doesn't work. Let's make it worse. What? Yeah. Or like, let's just get rid of it altogether. And it's like, no, that's not reform. Right. Yeah. And also, uh, Jerusalem has written about the same thing several fucking times. Like, Mm -hmm. she's got an article that says public comment is bad, actually. So somebody seems to have a pet issue. And... (laughs) I wanted to flame this on Twitter so bad, but I have that strong, I have a social media policy where I don't argue with black women in public, but God Uh damn, girl. God damn. Really? And 
Also, Atlantic, I'm looking at you kind of sideways because I remember when you launched your Atlantic Planet vertical and you ain't done shit but give one person a newsletter on a regular basis. And this is the other, this is a climate story that you're publishing. Oh, absolutely. And in fact, I would say that they have done, they have given more room to like contrarian, um, you know, anti-climate movement columnists than to their actual supposed climate vertical. But when you Because there was another story in the Atlantic a couple of weeks ago or maybe a month ago or something that was basically like, you know, progressives are getting in the way of climate progress. Similar kind of argument. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And if you go to the Mm -hmm. Atlantic Planet homepage, which is supposed to be their climate vertical, this story is not listed. So, But Mm -hmm. it is very clear that publishing this is a choice. And it was a choice not to have better climate content on your site. So Mm -hmm. do better. Yeah. Do better. And also, I'm I'm not sure if you saw, but um, in on the heels of the soup protest last mm-hmm. on the uh, on the sunflowers, there's been another protest involving mashed that. potatoes this time. I so saw that yes, what's a potato's <laughs> favorite song to dance to at a Halloween party? Oh God! Oh my the Monster God. Mash. Thank you. I was gonna be worried if you didn't get that one. Yes, that was a throwaway. Yes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Hot Take is a Crooked Media production. It's produced by Ray Pang and mixed and edited by Jordan Cantor. Our music is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Leo Duran is our senior producer. And our executive producers are Mariana Hegler, Michael Martinez, and me, Amy Westervelt. Special thanks to Sandy Gerard, Ari Schwartz, Kyle Seglin, and Charlotte Landes for production support, and to Amelia Montooth for digital support. You can follow the show on Twitter at Real Hot Take, sign up for our newsletter at hottakepod.com, and subscribe to Crooked Media's video channel at youtube.com slash crookedmedia. Media.